Good morning, everyone. We're going to conclude uh, Psalm 37 this morning. So if you would stand, we'll read together Psalm 37 on page 572 in the Pew Bible. We will go from verse 27 to the end, verse 40. I'll begin with verse 27. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. The Lord loves justice and does not proceed to the godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be out. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The lore of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen wicked, violent men spreading him, spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its, na- in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have prosperity. But the transgressions will be always together destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they have refuge in him. Amen. Please be seated. So we broke this particular psalm up into three different uh, weeks, but the one recurring theme in it is those who have faith in God will prosper. Now, we all have faith here in our church, and you could see, look in your wallets and see how much you've prospered. And, and I don't think that's what God had intended. But we do have a, rich, a richness that others in the world who do not know God do not have. As it talks about those who are wicked, they will fall by the wayside. They will disappear. They will um, be no more. But we have a treasure where our heart is stored up in heaven. And that will last forever. And that is the gracious thing about our God. He has given us this promise that through our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, that we have this eternal treasure, that we have the gift of eternal life, that it is not something that will disappear or wither, but it is something that we who have been made righteous by his blood can possess forever. And I think that's what the psalmist is trying to get across Back then, they didn't know Jesus or the Savior or anything like that at that point. But they did know a faith in the God in whom they worshiped, the one true living God. And as long as they maintained that faith, they were blessed. Here it sounds like it's so physical in in being blessed and staying in the land or possessing the land. But that land in which we can take possession of now is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In him we dwell forever. So that's the thing about these psalms. They're just beautiful because they show 
a true faith in God rather than in the works of what they had to do through their worship or sacrifices or, or the priesthood and the different things like that that they had. And, uh, the, and while the Psalms were being written, the temple, or no, the temple wasn't even probably standing at that point, but in the tabernacle. But, um, but we have the promises that are eternal through our, through our Lord and the Savior, which we are so blessed for. Thank you. So it'll be the third week that I'll come right into the, to the pulpit and I'll say, I am rich. And again, Pastor Steve just pointed out again that we are rich. And what I just wrote on my social media was, because I take refuge in him. And that psalm is beautiful. Thank you, Pastor Steve. So this morning I want to talk to us about Romans Road, right? That's your, uh, you see on the front of your bulletin, I gave you a road sign just in case you're confused as to where we're going. And some of you may be familiar with Romans Road. It's a... Uh, the Romans' road to salvation is a plan that has been put forth uh, to increase, well, what some would say, is to increase in evangelism. So if you do not know about the road to, the Romans' road to salvation, you will this morning, and then you'll know the problems with such a theory of the Romans' road to salvation when you pick Bible verses out and you try to make a, a road out of it. Um, and then you'll also see prayerfully this morning the contextual Romans' road to salvation. So... I want to start off with a quote that I happen to agree with that I heard from a popular pastor and author named David Platt a couple years ago at a conference. He also mentions the same quote in his book, Radical, and he says this, Much of modern evangelism today is leading people down a road that is built on sand, and this runs the risk of disillusioning many. We should be troubled by such a statement. And if you were to ever go and put in David Platt, P-L-A-T-T, in YouTube, you would see a very heart-wrenching message that he gave when he said that statement in front of pastors and Christians all over this country. So the question does become, if modern evangelism is leading people down a road that is built on sand, what should be done? What can be done? And my goal this morning is to get us thinking in that direction, that if evangelism is problematic out there, what should we be thinking at a thinking church about evangelism? What is our part? How do we understand this message? And my goal today would be to uh, kind of compound the book of Romans to help you better understand what it is we believe about what Christ has given to us and how we're telling the world about those riches. So the Romans' road to salvation is said to be a plan of salvation through a series of Bible verses from the book of Romans. When arranged in order, these verses form an easy, systematic way of explaining, said to be, uh, explaining the message of salvation. There are many different versions to the Romans road with slight variations of the scriptures, but the basic message and method is the same. Many people memorize and then use these verses in sharing the good news with the world. The Romans road aims to define, one, who needs salvation, two, why we need salvation, Three, how God provides salvation. Four, how we receive salvation. And five, the results of salvation. So, quite the effort. The so-called Romans road to salvation goes like this. Well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see this in Romans 3.23. The punishment for sin is eternal death, which we see in Romans 6.23. In that same passage, we see that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. People are saved by confessing with their lips that Jesus is Lord. We see this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And those who are justified through faith have peace with God, as we see in Romans 5, 1. 
You might hear that and you might say, well, why would you take an issue with that? That seems to be right. All have sinned. The punishment for sin is eternal death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. People are saved by confessing Jesus. And we are justified and have peace with God through Jesus. Well, amen, Pastor Mike. So then what's the issue? Well, to start with, and I'm going to quote someone here named Andrew Perryman. You can hardly call that a road. Someone has dug up half a dozen paving stones of the Apostle Paul's argument in the book of Romans laid them in a line, and it's hardly even a path. So I want to give you an understanding of the book of Romans this morning. And I believe that as we go through that understanding, you'll see why the Romans' road to salvation as an evangelistic effort can be problematic and should cause us to say, no easy believism, no proof-texting Bible verses, but instead let's understand the letter that was given to us by the Apostle Paul by this faithful disciple of Jesus Christ who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach the church at Rome in the first century the gospel. And therefore, we, being the church in 2019, can read this writing, and if we read it in context, we read it appropriately, and I'm going to give you four words that I believe will help you read it appropriately here in a moment. If we do that, then I think we can truly bring forth the healing of the nations. So the four ways that I want to encourage you that you should be looking at the book of Romans. The first would be contextual. How I've learned to read Romans contextually would be from teachers like N.T. Wright, Scott McKnight, Mark Nanos, who actually has a book called The Mystery of Romans, The Jewish Context of Paul's Letters. And of course, a podcast that I had recently sent out to many of you here in the church called The Paulcast, which helps you understand the different perspectives that have been offered up through Christian theology in the past 2,000 years in regards to the Apostle Paul. What I'm glad to say about contextual study of the book of Romans is that it's increasing. And it's increasing in a way that is uh, showing us that the audience relevance to the book of Romans is actually Jewish, not Gentile or, you know, more often than not, when people pick up the Bible, they say, you know, the the Apostle Paul wrote to the Gentiles, Galatia, Romans, uh, Ephesus. And yes, those were regions outside of, you know, where Israel resided. However, the churches, the people in those churches, matter of fact, Holger Neubauer is writing a book right now proving, Holger Neubauer being a very popular teacher that I like, he's writing a book showing that the ministry of the apostles was always to the Jew first. Therefore, at every church that you see a gent, like a, a, a Greek name, Galatia, Ephesus, there was a Jew there. And those Jews are the ones that are primarily being addressed when the letters are being given to the church. Because again, they would have understood the oracles of God. They've had this for you know, centuries, millennia, um, these teachings throughout the Law and the Prophets. So for them, it would be important to uh, understand, you know, the way that Paul and the details of Paul are being made known in a Jewish way. So contextual would say the book of Romans must be understood, understood through a Jewish lens. The next thing would be corporate. And the way I've learned corporate, with uh, one teacher that has definitely encouraged my studies is a writer named Tom Holland. And he has a book online that you can listen to read for free called The Contours of Pauline Theology. And what he does is he makes a great case for showing how the book of Romans is actually a building on top of the prophecies of Isaiah. Important to make mention is that uh, there's 26 citations in the book of Romans. 18 of them are from Isaiah. So again, Tom Holland is not far off. And what he does is he shows that what Paul is doing is building on top of this corporate promise, this hope of Israel that is made known through the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and now the Apostle Paul is showing how 
Those details are being made known through Jesus Christ. And it's a very corporate focus. The prophet Isaiah wasn't speaking to a person. He was speaking to a people. Therefore, the promises that the Apostle Paul is making known in the book of Romans that are building on top of the promises of Isaiah are not talking to a person, but are talking to people. The first problem that that emphasizes with the Romans' road to salvation is that when those five things are given to you, those five verses, they're given to you in a very individualistic way. That, you know, your sin leads to death. No, it was the sin that led to the death that the book of Romans is speaking about. The next word would be narrative. Many of you have heard me talk about this, that we need to understand the Bible in a narrative way, in a story type of way. And a teacher that I've already mentioned so far this morning, Andrew Perryman, is a teacher that if you were to do the research, he gives you amazing insights into a narrative understanding of the Bible. Matter of fact, Andrew Perryman is pretty much my uh, inspiration for this morning's message. If you were to put him into Google, Andrew Perryman and Romans Road, you would see a whole bunch of resources pop up because he's been one of the first teachers that really caused me to say, how are we teaching evangelism? How are we teaching the Bible? How are we talking about the truths of the Bible? And I am convinced that not only does it need to be contextual, not only does it need to be corporate, but it also needs to be in line with the biblical narrative. And then the last word I want to give you, which shouldn't be a surprise to anybody in the room, is preteristic. The text has to be understood preteristic. And two teachers that I might make mention of that have influenced me in that way would be Dr. Don K. Preston and Ed Stevens. And when I say preteristic, what I mean is whatever prophecies are found in the book of Romans must not be projected to our future, but should be understood as being fulfilled in that first century, in our past, which the word praetor means past. Ed Stevens says this about the book of Romans. Paul's goal for his argument in the book of Romans was to convince both Jews and Gentiles to unite together as one people of God. Knowing that the purpose behind his words, knowing the purposes behind his words, the Apostle Paul's, really helps as we understand the book of Romans. So again, the whole goal, it's not an individual goal uh, you know, written to a, Roman, a man in Rome. It's a book written to a, the church in Rome to tell them, the church, the Jews and the Gentiles gathered at Rome, how to deal with each other, how to understand that the gospel has been made known to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, which the Apostle Paul makes known right there in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, right at the beginning of the letter. Another commentator that brought out some interesting insights about the book of Romans was a man named Daniel Harrington. And he said this, while Romans is not a theological treaty, it wasn't written to uh, kind of detail, you know, uh, all the aspects of theology to you, contrary to popular thought. If you were to talk to like half the theologians out there, they think the book of Romans is all about theology. No, it was a letter written to a church to help them deal with the issues that were there at their church at that time. So it's not a theological treaty. However, it is probably the Apostle Paul's most extensive and profound statement on theology. In, in it, Paul made the abundant use of the Old Testament in confirming his basic thesis that it is, salvation is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. In clinching his case that both Gentiles and Jews needed the revelation of God's righteousness in and through Jesus Christ. He develops his argument about justification by faith with reference to Abraham. And then he constructs a comparison between Adam and Christ. And then he places the remnant as those that would understand the mystery of salvation. And then finally, by the end of the letter, he gives the commandment of love that sums up all the biblical commandments. So let's talk 
about an overview and maybe some details in the book of Romans. First thing I want to make mention of is I already said that there's 18 citations of, from Isaiah found in the book of Romans. Also, there's eight citations from Genesis found in the book of Romans, obviously bringing us back to Adam. Some other Old Testament texts you might want to write down would be Habakkuk 2.4, which is what the Apostle Paul quotes from in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where he says the just shall live by faith. That's coming from the Old Testament. In the Apostle Paul also uses Genesis 15, 6, talking about Abraham and how he was righteous in Romans chapter 4 and how righteousness will come by faith. Again, I made mention of Genesis chapter 3. You see that in Romans chapter 5, how the Apostle Paul compares uh, Christ and Adam. In Isaiah, the Apostle Paul uses Isaiah 10, verses 22 through 23 in Romans 9. And what Isaiah had prophesied was that only a remnant would be delivered and would experience the promises of God. And sure enough, in Romans chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul says something like, so all Israel are not of Israel, he's pointing out the remnant that would receive the promise through Jesus Christ. And then lastly, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 13 to declare the golden rule. The one rule that we should all know and live by, that we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So in Romans chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul begins this letter by talking about the righteousness of God that has been revealed in the gospel. He goes to great lengths in those first three chapters of showing that there's a universal need for righteousness. Yes, the Jew first, the Jew that's been declared dead under the law, and the Gentile that did not sin in the likeness of Adam meaning violating a law, but still were guilty of sin in and of themselves. They had carnal minds and were manifesting carnality. He also goes to great lengths in those first three chapters to show that the law could not save the people of God. It would not be by means of the law. Andrew Perryman says this about Romans 1 through 3. He says, an essential element in Paul's argument in Romans 1 through 3 is that the Jews, God's chosen people, we're no less subject to the power of sin than the Gentiles. Rhetorically, Romans 3.23, that text that is often used and abused through the, the um, Romans' road to salvation, that all are under sin, in Romans 3.23, this belongs to Paul's argument against the Jews. The sort of argument that Paul would have repeated in the synagogues as he traveled throughout the empire. It's also important to make mention of in a lot of these texts where we read about the law, the sin, and the death, there's a definite article that is missing in most of our English translations. That the definite article would add to, it would make it a certain type of death, not death in general, but the death that came through the law that brought forth the sin uh, is often used throughout the Bible, but unfortunately to us English readers, right over our head. Thank God for good teachers. Furthermore, the, um, Andrew Perryman, not the Apostle Paul, goes into talking about these wages of sin. This wages of sin is death, is what Romans 3.23 says. And what the point is, is that it's not the inevitable death of the sinner that's driving the Apostle Paul's argument. And that's the problem with the Romans' road to salvation. Is What they're trying to do is they come up to you and they talk about the wages of sin is death. And what they're talking about is that you're one day going to die. That's not the death that the Apostle Paul is talking about in the book of Romans. 
you know, again, I know I'm probably not the only person in this room that's been on the street at some point. I'm usually the target for Christian evangelists. And, you know, you go out in the streets and somebody will come up to me and say, well, you know, you're going to die one day. Where do you think you're going to go? That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 3.23. That's not the argument. But unfortunately, that's the way this verse is pulled and often used to project this onto evangelism, that we're helping people go live somewhere else one day, the better place. Unfortunately, that is not what the Apostle Paul is detailing here. What he's saying is that the death that was made manifest to the law will not be taken away by anything other than the righteousness that would be provided by God through Jesus Christ. He's locking everybody under the punishment of sin. And it's not the death of the sinner that the Apostle Paul is trying to warn them against. It's the coming day of wrath, first against the Jew, then against the Greek. And you see this in Romans 1, 18, as well as Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Furthermore, in talking about eternal life, so now if the death is not talking about biological death, the flip side of that text where it talks about eternal life is provided through Jesus Christ is not talking about life after biological death. It's life after judgment. It's the life of the age to come. The age that will come after a cataclysmic judgment that will constitute the wrath of God against the Jew and the Gentile. Righteous Gentiles will find themselves justified for having persevered in doing what is right and good. When God judges the world, again, which we know, as I made mention, preteristic, a past tense prophecy. God's people who will lose their lives because of their testimony through this promise of eternal life will be raised and will reign with Christ throughout the coming ages, the ages which we are now living in and professing God's glorious truth. Furthermore, in Romans 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul is trying to make clear that the works of the law could not save Israel because the law did not deal with the root of the problem of human sin. In the end, it can only condemn God's people to destruction. Only those Jews, along with a growing number of Gentiles, who took the narrow path of trusting in Jesus Christ, the way of suffering and vindication, would be justified, would have peace with God, would not come under condemnation, would find themselves on the right side of history. Dare I say, we are rich. That's the right side of history. So then you move into Romans 4 through 5, and what you see the Apostle Paul doing here, now that he's made this righteousness known, and the only way to gain this righteousness, not by law, but only through Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, is then he begins to give Old Testament pictures of righteousness and sin. And it should not surprise us that his example of righteousness is Abraham. Which, by the way, Vicky gave me an interesting insight after our study this morning that Abraham is the opposite of Jonah. If you catch the power of that, borrowing a quote there, uh, if you catch it, Jonah doesn't want the riches of salvation or the riches of anything to be you know, given to other people. He clearly wants to keep the riches for himself. Whereas Abraham, when he learned of Sodom and Gomorrah being under condemnation, what did he do? And he said, not worried about those folks. Time to go home. Or let God deal with them. Not my problem. Or I don't want to go there. I don't want to pray for them. No. What do we know Abraham did? He prayed for them. He interceded for those people. He did what Jonah failed to do. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So yes, in Romans 4 through 5, the Apostle Paul gives these types. And obviously the, the anti-type, uh, the type of uh, the wicked is Adam. 
A man that was given the truth, given the law, given everything he needed, full prosperity, and yet decided to listen to his own carnal mind. So you have Abraham and you have Adam. Or you could say you have Abraham and you have Jonah. However you want to put that story together. Which also, now that I'm saying that, I have teachings that have said Adam equals Israel. And if you remember during our study this morning, I said Jonah equals Israel. So now you could start putting together your wicked picture. Adam, Jonah, Israel of the Old Covenant, Israel of the flesh. And then you could put together a beautiful picture of the righteous. Abraham, Jesus, the church made righteous through Jesus. And that's the point the Apostle Paul is trying to make through Romans 4 and 5, is giving you these different pictures, parables, if you will, of righteousness and sin. So then you move further into Romans 6 through 7, and you read about the objections to the gospel of grace. And I don't know how you can read Romans 6 through 7 and not say that that is a Jewish audience. Why would a Gentile argue about the details of the law? Why would a Gentile be concerned that if the law goes away, you're encouraging us to sin? The only person that would say that, even think those type of things, would be the Jew under the Old Covenant that would say, well, wait a minute, if you're taking away the law, if you're saying the law is not able to manifest righteousness, are you encouraging us to sin? By no means. And the Apostle Paul goes into great lengths in Romans 6-7 through by showing that that is not what his point is. And then in Romans 8, he brings the letter to an early conclusion. So what is all of this pointing to? How will... These people at Rome know this righteousness of God. If it's not being made known through the law, if it's, they clearly have all these questions in Romans 6 through 7 that are objections to this truth, how will they know such a righteousness that Abraham knew? And then he says, it's through the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 19, we read about the hope that the creation was subjected to futility, that they would one day experience and know the manifestation of the sons of God. Manifestation of the sons, plural, corporate, group of people of God. That was the promise. Not the manifestation of your new life in heaven. You see the problem here. That's not the Romans road to salvation will lead you to think that you're going somewhere else and that's the gospel. Whereas the true contextual Romans road points you to figuring out who the children of God are. Where that righteousness of God can be found and whom it should be found. Pete ends very popular author. He actually has a recent book out about uh, showing how we've made it completely impossible to read the Bible with all the different teachings and doctrines are out there. Then now when people read the Bible, they argue more so, but my Bible tells me so, rather than actually learning from the text. So Pete N. said this, when you read Romans chapter 8, verse 19, it's not about individuals. It's about the collective. If I could put it a little bit differently, the book of Romans, to use theological language, the book of Romans is not about soteriology, how you get saved. It's about ecclesiology. Ecclesiology means the church, the study of the church. In other words, what Paul's saying in the book of Romans is, who makes up the people of God? Who are the people of God? Who are these people that are supposed to have this righteousness of God? Furthermore, in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, in pushing that promise of this people of God, the Apostle Paul brings up something that has caused division in Christian circles for centuries. He says that there will be the redemption of the body. So we know many Christians, and the Romans road to salvation, they won't use this verse, of course, because this is now we're getting into heavy theology. But when you start to get to that, and usually what they do is they just leave it blank, and then if you were to go out on the streets and talk to any Christian, they'll just fill in the blank as to what they think the resurrection of the body is. And, you know, thus we have confused Christians everywhere. 
um, and more people arguing about one day getting a new body rather than understanding what the Apostle Paul was talking about. Don Preston says this, the word body in verse 23 is singular, not plural. So it does not say the redemption of their bodies. It says the redemption of the, or I'm sorry, the redemption of our body, the body we share in. Those people at Rome, there was a body that some people at Rome shared in that needed to be redeemed. It should not be a surprise at this point who that group of people were. The old covenant Jews under law, where they were declared dead by way of the law and it manifested sins among them. Don says, the word body in verse 23 is singular, not plural. While that is not definitive in the Greek, it is suggestive. And when considered in light of Isaiah's prediction, remember again, the book of Romans is built upon the prophecies of Isaiah. So when you understand the Isaiah's prophecies and the coming redemption and many other passages, the corporate concept becomes quite persuasive. The identical concept is actually found in Romans, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, where they're told that they're looking out for the redemption of the purchased possession. I'd like to tell you this morning that the purchased possession in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12 is the same thing as the redemption of the body in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. So what is the chosen possession? You keep reading through the book of Ephesians, and sure enough, by the time you get to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it tells you the body of Christ. So the body of the old covenant Jews needed to be raised up into this purchased possession, which is the body of Christ. This is without a doubt a corporate concept of the body that was awaiting the day of redemption. So then, continuing from this, now that the Apostle Paul has concluded his points in Romans 8, that the whole point of this letter, you want to know how to get the righteousness of God? You need to be a part of that purchased possession. You want to know the righteousness of God? If you're a Jew under the Old Covenant, you need to experience the redemption of the body, which is that resurrection of that Old Covenant system. And then, of course, if now let's say you said, well, Pastor Mike, I need you to prove that a little bit more. Well, the letter continues. And sure enough, as you move into Romans chapters 9 through 11, he talks to the people he's been talking to, Israel. And he begins to explain to them the details of past Israel, present Israel, and what future Israel would essentially be. Daniel Thompson, who I mentioned before, says this. In the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, Paul's thesis of justification is to deal with the problem of God's old covenant people and their rejection of this gospel provision. If any people should have been prepared for the coming and the reception of the Messiah, it was the nation of Israel. As Paul says in Romans 9, 4, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. But although Israel partook of such privileges and preparation, it seems as though the word had no effect on some of them. Revealed who was not of Israel, who would not participate in that redeemed body, that purchased possession. So then the Apostle Paul ends this letter, Romans chapters 11 through 16, with practical application of the gospel. I love this passage in Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. He says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 
You see, that's the point of his whole letter. And from Romans 1, the righteousness of God will be made manifest through Jesus Christ. The law will not make make righteousness known. Jesus Christ will. The redemption of the body will be the redemption that will be provided through Jesus Christ. And essentially, that purchased possession will be his body. That's what he's making known through this whole letter. So what should we see? We should see that the Romans Road approach distorts Paul's argument in the letter in two ways. First, it takes a narrative about Israel and how the Gentiles are being included in this future existence of the people of God, and it hacks it down to a dimension of a personal narrative of salvation and life after biological death. It's not the book of Romans. It's something else. And it's not the gospel. Secondly, it takes a particular historical narrative and converts it into a universalized narrative that no longer has anything to do with the details as they were made known in history. You ever talk to Christians about the gospel and then wonder, is that what the Apostle Paul was teaching to the Jews in Macedonia? That's why they were hunting him down because he was going and he was telling people on the streets that, hey, if you believe in Jesus and you confess, one day you will live in heaven. And so the people were hunting him down and killing him for that. That doesn't make any sense in light of history. Evangelism was and is the call to people everywhere to respond to the story of God, not to the desires and manifestations you can muster up within yourself about going somewhere else. That's not evangelism. That is not the gospel. Evangelism is the large-scale story of God as made known through Jesus Christ. It's the story of God redeeming the nations. And it's the story of God revealing the renewal of all creation. His way, not ours. The narrative approach does not exclude the agenda of modern evangelism. But what it says is that what we're offering up as modern evangelism is radically altering the gospel as made known through the book of Romans. So what should be said to an evangelist today? Not, don't save souls anymore, but maybe something like, can we begin with the beginning of the story and end with the end of the story as it's made known through the scriptures? Would that be wrong? Because again, when I read through the Bible, it doesn't end with me dying and going to heaven. It reads with God providing something that will bring healing to the nations. To me, that's good news. That God provided something that will bring healing to the nations. And if you don't know what that something is, you can look to the person to the right of you. Um, we are that answer. The church will make known the manifold wisdom of God. And if you don't have somebody to the right of you, you can look to the person to the left of you. Don't worry. We are here. And in conclusion this morning, I do hope that I've impressed upon you that you need to read the book of Romans and the gospel in context, knowing that it's a corporate promise, not an individual thing. This isn't about you and me. It's about us. We must follow the biblical narrative to better understand the biblical story and actually stay in line with what it says in the beginning and what it says in the end. And of course, you must be a preterist. Despite how clarifying marking out these details might be, it's said that in gaining an understanding of these things just continues to show more and more theological squabbles and debates. Many times these debates are antagonistic to the truth that I have put before you this morning. Of course, we will continue to study the Word of God, to study the Book of Romans, mark out contextual, corporate, narrative, and preterist promises that the gospel might be made known. 
and of course, walk in the fullness of his kingdom. That's what we're going to be doing this year with saturating. See, we have work to do because everybody else is out there saturating people with the Romans road gospel. We need to get out there and saturate them with the full Bible gospel. You know, the whole counsel of God, as the Apostle Paul called it. I'll close with this thought from the Kingdom Bible. This is what they said in their Romans commentary. The book of Romans may be referred to as the fifth gospel. The fifth gospel, and, and I do want to stop there for a minute and I have to say something. I have a problem with people saying stuff like that, the fifth gospel and adding things, you know, do not add, do not take away. It gets a little tricky because I do remember a teacher that I totally disagree with who said that the Apostles' Creed should be the fifth gospel. So I just want to be careful when we read quotes like that and I want to remind us that don't add, you know, just say that the book of Romans is a great explanation of the gospel. Seems a bit better to me and probably rightly said. Don't start adding different ways of putting the book together. It gets more confusing. This book of Romans may be best entitled The Gospel of the Kingdom. The power of the gospel, which is made known in Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul said he was unashamed of the gospel, that is power to salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And the rule of God, as made known in Romans 16, verses 20 through 26, are the gospel that is made known from the beginning to the end of the book. The kingdom of God is literally defined in its fullness in Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is nothing more and nothing less. No hidden clauses or small print to sift through. Coupled with Jesus' words in Luke 17, verses 20 through 21, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. We can derive, when we couple Romans 14 and Luke 17 together, we can derive a clear understanding as to the true nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, not sort of is, not partly is, not temporarily is, but simply is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for the inspiration you gave the apostles. Lord, we thank you for the inspiration you give us to search out the words of the apostles, the words of the law and the prophets, Lord, and all that your spirit would illuminate for us. Lord, we thank you for all that you've put before us, everything pertaining to life and godliness, a kingdom of love, peace, righteousness, and joy, Lord, a spirit that would make that known. We do thank you, Lord, for being spiritually discerned. We ask that you would continue to increase our energy, our fortitude, our perseverance, Lord, in this gospel, as well as our knowledge of this gospel, so that we would truly begin to see the healing of the nations, Lord. Lord, thank you. Go before us. Lord, I pray that anything that I may have made confusing, you will make clarifying. And we give you all the praise, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.